HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This piece has been brought to you by Bonnie Plants, bonnieplants.com. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Greetings and welcome to Heritage Radio Network's Inside School Food, the podcast about progressive solutions in K-12 nutrition nationwide. I'm Laura Stanley. Today's topic is new research on school breakfast, two important new studies. Um, As most of you know, a huge body of previous research has rigorously and thoroughly demonstrated the benefits of breakfast at school, particularly among students from food insecure homes. Um, With breakfast, attendance and academic performance improved substantially. Um, More than 90% of schools participating in the National School Lunch Program also serve breakfast, and participation rates are steadily rising. And yet... Why are nearly half the kids who need school breakfast the most still not eating it? So our first study from the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity doesn't address this question head on, but its findings strongly support the national push to deliver breakfast to every child at school. It turns out that when it comes to achieving and maintaining a healthy weight, Two breakfasts, that's at home and at school, are better than none. And get this, very possibly even better than one. Um, And then after station break, we'll look at a study from No Kid Hungry. Um, This one looks at the impacts of personalized promotions at school in the morning, um, like bus drivers cheerleading for breakfast when they drop children off. Uh, Organize these kinds of very simple strategies right, and many more students will eat. So with us on the line from the Rudd Center is Director Marlene Schwartz. Uh, Marlene last joined us on, in April 2015 to talk about an influential plate weight, uh, plate weight study that countered um, anecdotal accounts of an uptick in discarded food since the introduction of mandatory fruit, vegetables, and whole grains to school meals. Um, Rudd is a powerful advocate for the right of children to eat healthfully and feel good about their bodies across the socioeconomic spectrum. Welcome back to Inside School Food. 
Good morning. I'm happy to be here. So this study has already gotten a lot of press. Um, so the question of, of the double breakfast and the impact on kids is, has been a big one. Why so pressing? And, um, you know, what, what about your findings is, is possibly a game changer here? Well, there's been a lot of debate about whether or not school breakfast should be heavily promoted by policymakers. And the concern, especially after a study that was done in New York City, was that by heavily promoting school breakfast, you might lead students to consume two breakfasts. Mm -hmm. And in light of childhood obesity, that seemed like a bad idea. Um, So what we decided to do was look at a school district that had universal free breakfast and see how students' weight changed over time. And I think what was surprising to everyone was that the students who did consume two breakfasts actually looked healthier over time than the students who skipped breakfast altogether. Wow. Okay. And so they're eating more breakfast, and yet they're gaining uh, weight at a healthier rate. Um, tell us about the, the kids that you looked at. Um, first of all, you, 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 this was in New Haven, correct? That's right. So this was a study that took place in New Haven, Connecticut, and it was part of a larger NIH project that followed a set of students over four years from fifth grade through eighth grade, and we wanted to see how they developed their eating habits, physical activity levels, and how they were influenced by the school environment. So this was one of the questions we were able to answer. And why did you choose fourth grade to eighth grade? Well, middle school is a time when students are transitioning from making, you know, primarily decisions based on what their parents provide to making more independent decisions. And so we thought it would be a good time to see if school policies could really protect students from developing unhealthy eating habits. Mm-hmm. And um, you did um, observe, well, first of all, we should backtrack a little bit. You, you, you were really careful to break out um, the different habits of these kids. How many children altogether were involved? Um, The cohort had about uh, 500 students Mm -hmm. overall, and we asked about breakfast in a couple of different ways. We asked them how many days a week they typically consumed breakfast, and then we also asked them where they consumed breakfast the day before. Mm -hmm. And so what we needed to do was identify the different types of breakfast consumption patterns across the students, and it's complicated because it isn't like you only have kids who eat breakfast every single day or skip breakfast every single day. So it sort of was a mixed bag. And what we found was that by combining these two questions, statistically, we were able to identify six different um, profiles. So the kids who ate breakfast every day at school, ate breakfast every day at home, those that were inconsistent either at school or home, those that basically skipped breakfast all the time, and then this final group of students who reported regularly eating breakfast at school and home. And what, what percentage were eating breakfast twice? It was about 8 to 10 percent. So okay. it was a small group. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, Tell us a little bit about the New Haven demographic. I understand it's a pretty high free reduced district. 
That's right. Um, the percentage of students who qualify for free or reduced lunch is around 80%, and because of that, the district provides universal free breakfast and free lunch for all students in every school. Yeah, and um, I think the real concern, um, or I guess one of the reasons you, you chose New Haven is that there is a high level of um, overweight and obesity there, higher than the national average. So this is a pretty urgent matter there. What do, what do the overweight and obesity rates look like in New Haven? Um, in New Haven, the rates of overweight are just over 20%, and obesity is closer to 30%. So mm-hmm. it's quite a significant yeah. health concern in New Haven. Right. So if extra breakfast was an issue with um, abnormal weight gain, that would be something you'd need to identify, obviously. So right. so you've got your 8 to 10% um, double breakfast eaters, and these kids are are gaining weight at a healthy rate as opposed to are skipping. Um, maybe part of that has to do with who's who's eating double breakfast. What did you find out about the kids who had big appetites for breakfast? Well, one of the things that's important to keep in mind is that we didn't assign the students to eat two breakfasts. So these were the students that naturally, on their own, decided to eat two breakfasts. So um, when you look at them, they were primarily boys. And I think that that's important because boys in this age group sometimes go through big growth spurts, as people know, and can need a lot of calories. And so my guess is that the students who chose to eat two breakfasts actually needed to eat two breakfasts. Mm-hmm in order to, um, you know, get the number of calories that they needed. And I, I also think it's important to realize that a school breakfast is quite a healthy breakfast. Mm-hmm. And it isn't as though they were eating two breakfasts, you know, from a fast food restaurant or, you know, someplace that provided a lot of unhealthy options. But the school breakfast was typically, you know, fruit, grain, low-fat dairy. So it was really, um, for some of these boys, could have been considered a large snack. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then who was skipping breakfast the most? Well, the girls tended to do everything else. <laughs> so they were more wow. likely to skip, and they were more yeah. likely to be inconsistent breakfast eaters. Mm-hmm. And so that, um, and that's pretty consistent with the literature, that uh, teenage girls do seem to skip breakfast more frequently. Do we know why? Well, that's a really interesting question, and and we don't know for sure why. Um, We spent some time speculating about it. One theory is reverse causality, which is that um, the girls are skipping breakfast because they're worried about their weight, and Mm -hmm. so they're trying to eat fewer calories by Mm -hmm. not starting first thing in the morning. Mm -hmm. Um, The problem is that it usually doesn't work, and what tends to happen is if someone doesn't eat breakfast, and then if they're in school or at a job where they can't eat later when they're hungry, by the time lunch comes around, they're really, really hungry, and in the afternoon, they tend to still be really hungry, and they may overconsume and not make the healthiest choices. Mm-hmm. And children don't know this. Um, and and as we know, I mean, anyone who's had a teenager or who feeds teenagers for a living, they are notorious breakfast skippers. Um, and of course, all of the research we have about the impact of on just cognitive function in schools is is very convincing. Um, but but for girls especially, I mean, it's it. it 
it kind of tugs at my heartstrings to think that girls who are struggling with their weight or think they should be struggling with their weight are actually giving up on the one strategy which would give them control. Yeah, I think it is a real concern. And I think, though, for this age group, and especially as they move into high school, it also probably um, is affected by sleep patterns and very early school start times. Mm -hmm. So it would be interesting to see if school districts that are changing their start times to later start to see some improvement in participation in breakfast. Because I think a lot of adolescents just are not hungry and they're sort of half asleep when they're getting ready to go out to the bus. You know, as a mother of a former teen, I'm so glad you mentioned that. I know that's not something you talked about in the study, but it would be really interesting if there was research on timing of breakfast, uh, breakfast after the bell programs that were sort of more at a time when adolescents are ready to eat. Is there anything out there or, you know, in the in the pipeline about that? I haven't seen anything, but I agree. I think it would be really helpful to see if offering breakfast a little bit later in the morning would would be more successful for students. Right, right. Well, you know, and it's not it's not just adolescents, but but people of all ages who seem to be in you know have better luck with healthy weight when they eat breakfast. So I, I suppose there's other theories about this too. Um, you you talked about you know kids needing to eat more because they've skipped, but there's just I don't know. I mean, are there other theories about satiation and how the body works and, you know? I, yeah, I think there's there are theories that, um, you know, part of what determines how many calories you burn in a day, in, va- in fact, the vast majority of that is determined by your basal metabolic rate. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the amount of exercise you get is kind of a small percentage of your overall caloric burn for the day. Mm -hmm. So there are theories about trying to make sure your basal metabolic rate is as fast as possible because that means that you're burning, you know, the calories that you eat. And so one of the theories is that eating breakfast, in fact, increases your basal metabolic rate. And so it kind of gets you started in the daytime, whereas if you skip breakfast, the idea is that that um, your metabolism is slow, and so it's not working as efficiently as it could. That's fascinating, and somehow that's a message we need to get to our kids. Um, so, Marlene, I, you know, I know there are some limitations to this research, so I assume that you know you're already thinking about you know what would the next steps for research on this topic look like. Well, one of the questions that is remaining is whether or not um, eating breakfast in the morning at school sort of sets you up for a healthier eating pattern over the course of the day. Mm-hmm. So it would be really interesting to do a study where they're um, promoting school breakfast and presumably getting more kids to participate and follow students before and after who do or don't participate and see if it is sort of setting them up to have healthier eating patterns all day long. Right, right. And in terms of promoting, that's what our next guest is going to be talking about. So um, I'm really glad you brought that up, Marlene. Um, Marlene, it's been really great having you back on the show. Um, I'm I'm really, thank you so much for sharing highlights of this pioneering study, um, really the first of its kind on kids who eat to breakfast. Um, You've been listening to a conversation with Dr. Marlene Schwartz, director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy 
policy and obesity at the University of Connecticut. If you want to read the study we've been talking about, you'll find a link to it on today's show page on InsideSchoolFood.com. So next up, Casey Mitchell of No Kid Hungry describes results from a really interesting new pilot study that looks at low-cost, low-overhead strategies for increasing breakfast participation. So don't go away. It's not just your garden. It's the way you live. And there's so much to know. But you have help. Bonnie Plants. Now with Bonnie's app, Homegrown, you can learn about veggie and herb varieties, track and record your garden with photos and notes, share on Facebook and Twitter, and so much more. How'd you ever grow without it? Get Homegrown with Bonnie Plants for iPhone and Android. The more you know, the better you can grow with Bonnie. Welcome back. Uh, Inside School Food has just entered its third year, and somehow in all this time, we have not managed to devote an episode to breakfast. So I hope today's segment will be the first of many. If you have suggestions for us on this topic or, or any other topic for that matter, please write to us via the contact page on InsideSchoolFood.com. So today's second study is the work of Share Our Strengths, No Kid Hungry. More specifically, it's the work of their innovation team, which runs pilots in schools to test run carefully honed strategies for enhanced success in nutrition education, summer meals, after school meals, and school breakfast. Our next guest, Casey Mitchell, is the innovation team manager behind a breakfast pilot in schools where the free reduced rate is low to moderate and breakfast is not offered in the classroom. Um, To bring up participation in these settings, they experimented with something they call nudge marketing. Um, And I will let Casey explain what that is. Hi there, Casey. Hi, Laura. How are you? Good. I'm really happy to have you on. Um, And I think this is a new term for school food, the nudge. What's a nudge? A nudge is just a, you know, basic, you know, how how are you? Have you had breakfast this morning? It's really just some sort of, um, you know, respected figure within the school who engages the kid, you know, in in a normal way, but encourages them if they say, no, I haven't had breakfast to go eat breakfast that morning um, and then continue on with their day. It's so simple. It's very simple. Yeah. So in other words, you know, on site, you know, kind of point of point of point of, uh, you know, eating. Um, so you did a pilot, a pilot testing this out as because as simple as it seems, obviously, it needs to be tested out. How do you do it? Other different approaches. Um, tell us how you you structured it. First of all, I mentioned um, that you chose these lower to moderate free reduced rate districts. Um, what are the, you know, challenges for for breakfast um, that are particular to these kinds of settings? So in these uh, low or mixed income schools uh, or low need schools, we see that, you know, they they essentially can't make uh, breakfast after the bell work financially, typically, Um, you know, if they're going to have it free for all students or, you know, just there's not enough students to, you know, who would maybe take advantage of it. And so they're they 
they're they're not able to actually implement that sort of program. So, you know, we felt really good about, you know, for high-need schools that, you know, the gold standard is alternative or breakfast models in the classroom, but we didn't have a solution to present to these lower-need schools, and so we needed to investigate what's a low-cost, high-impact way to increase breakfast participation in a school that maybe can adopt an alternative model. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what who participated? How many schools did you work with on this? We worked with 23 schools in four different states. Um, you know, the the nudge really is was developed intended for an elementary school setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, we tried it out in some middle and high schools, but we feel very strongly about our recommendations, particularly for the elementary schools. Mm-hmm. And how many students in these 23 schools were involved? So on average, the enrollment was um, about um, 550 students per school, mm-hmm. and you know the average um, free and reduced price eligible rate was 55 percent. So you know the population we were trying to impact in each school was probably around 250 students. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know I, I think we'll talk about later. It didn't just impact them; it also impacted students who might pay for school breakfast. That is very cool, and we will get to that. Um, so these nudge strategies, did you come up with them and tell the pilot schools what to do? or did they get the idea and make their own decisions? How did it work? So um, it was actually pretty broad. You know, we we gave them an onboarding webinar explaining what a marketing plan might look like. You know, it has a mass marketing component, meaning flyers or posters, and then it also needed to have this nudge component. So we gave them this overarching, you know, you need to come up with a plan of how to encourage students to eat breakfast in the morning, and it may look like something as simple as just having someone posted at the front door greeting students and, and asking if they had breakfast that day. But, you know, by no means was that a requirement. That was just suggestion, and it was really interesting to see all the different ways that they had interpreted that and, and implemented it in their schools. Yeah, so uh, what are some of the strategies that, that they came up with that worked well? Uh, well, so, you know, every school's morning looks a bit different, right? You know, that's mm-hmm. why it's kind of challenging, right, to work with schools sometimes to say, you need to do this this way. Um, but, you know, in one of these schools, for example, they kept a lot of the students on buses mm-hmm. in the morning until the bell rang. And so they actually empowered the bus drivers to, um, you know, at, when they parked their buses and waited, said, hey, you know, are there any students here who want to go in for breakfast? And encouraged them to get off the bus and go into the cafeteria before school started. Mm-hmm. That was one example. Another was in um, an elementary school, the counselor was leading the effort around this nudge um, marketing plan, and she came up with this idea, why don't, you know, we have teachers in the morning and in the afternoon, you know, trading off patrolling and, you know, helping students get in and get into their cars at the end of the day. Why don't we give them aprons and, you know, have them as designated nudgers in the morning (laughs) and the afternoon, you know, just talking up breakfast, you know, after school, and then also encouraging students in the morning. And so it was not the same teacher, but they basically came to the, the front office, got their apron in the morning, and, and everyone knew that that was what they were supposed to do in that nudge period. Yes, yeah, so they had these aprons as kind of like almost a branded effort, um, but yep. pre- pretty low cost. I mean, we're talking about things that don't cost much at all to do. Yeah, I mean, I think they were they were things that the teachers had brought in themselves as mm-hmm. an option to use, so it wasn't even something they had to purchase. Yeah, yeah. And principals, too, could you stand in the door and tell kids to eat lunch? I mean, anyone could do it, right? 
Yeah, no, I mean, some, I mean, principals who, you know, are able to oversee their morning routine, I know some are very busy, but um, yeah. those who are, you know, they definitely, they kind of position, I've seen a couple where they position themselves at the one door that all students come in, and they're talking to every single student as they come in, trying to, and some of them try to sneak by, but they always try to make sure they catch every <laughs> single student when they come in in the morning. Right, right. So you, you, your study looks at success outcomes, and they were substantial in some of the pilot districts. Um, you know, who did the best? And, and why were they the most successful in the group? The most successful schools were those who had a, a clear um, champion or a clear leader to basically orchestrate or develop this marketing plan and then communicate it out to the stakeholders involved. And, you know, sometimes the nudge plan didn't include a, a bunch of staff people, but just having the awareness on campus that, you know, this is happening, creating that buzz around it was extremely important to success. You know, a, another uh, important element was, you know, so, some folks didn't maybe do as many days of nudging, like maybe they had one or two days throughout the pilot period, which was about four weeks. But um, those who had an extended um, period of nudging or essentially just incorporated it into their morning routine by, you know, just letting the staff know, like, hey, this should be the thing you're asking students mm-hmm. as they come off the bus. Those were the ones that were definitely more successful. Right, right. So real, a real a school-wide um, community effort. And um, you, you told me that the study um, revealed that before um, they, they, you know, involved teachers in this, teachers didn't necessarily even know um, what the district's free reduced rate was. They, they, they just don't, you know, they're kind of cut off from that whole piece of school life. So it, this kind of helped, helped you know, um, uh, change that. Yeah, no, I, in several different schools, I would say more than five, uh, the principals, unprompted by me, uh, they they said, you know, this was a great way to start a conversation with mm-hmm. teachers that needed to be had about the need in their school. And, you know, a lot of these schools were have been experiencing year-over-year increases in their free or reduced price um, population, mm-hmm. and it's just not been something that they've had to confront that, like, I should know when breakfast is in the morning. I should know that a student come, that comes in and says, I'm hungry, I can, you know, in some cases, is they can actually tell the kid, go back to cafeteria and you can bring up a breakfast. That right. was something that a lot of these principals said, I'd be totally fine with. And it was just an opportunity to have a conversation and look at this um, issue in a different way and in a, in a positive way rather than as, a, as an issue without a solution. Right, right. And so, of you know, let's look at percentage increases in the, in the best cases. By how much did participation go up as a result of nudge marketing? Um, you know, in the best case, I think we saw a 57% increase. Wow. Um, but on average, um, the top 10 schools didn't experience about a 23% change. Yeah. And, you know, just if, if we were to say, you know, well, actually, you know, our, our campaign use it, is going to use this as a tactic going forward. And our recommendation or our guidance is that if a school can, can adopt this as a strategy, they could probably see a 10-point increase in their participation. So that's not percent increase. That's mm-hmm. saying I'm going from 40% of my students participating to 50% of my students yeah. participating. Yeah. And that's that's substantial. So, and I know you also um, looked at parent attitudes about school breakfast and parent awareness of breakfast as a resource. What did you find out in questioning parents in your pilot districts? Sure. So, you know, one of our key hypotheses or hypotheses about this um, idea was, you know, maybe it's because parents don't know. You know, we have done previous um, focus groups and surveys of parents in other places that had found some low awareness about breakfast being available. And we figured, okay, well, if these are lower-need schools, maybe not as many parents are aware that this is an option. Mm-hmm 
regardless if they are eligible for free or reduced price meals. And actually, you know, we found that a lot of the parents actually knew about breakfast. However, our other hypothesis about using existing communication channels to reach parents is is valid. You know, that's a great way to actually reach um, parents with information. You don't need to recreate the wheel and develop a brand new um, way to communicate with parents. A lot mm-hmm. of the times, the, the channels you use, robocalls, you know, emails home, flyers, um, those things can get a message across. You know, however, you know, I will say that we didn't find that it actually could maybe convince all parents to send their kid to breakfast. Yeah, yeah. So that, that you know, right on the point at breakfast time is more effective than an email to the parents. It's so direct. Um, and I, so, you know, we just heard Marlene talk about, um, you know, this study that would, would hopefully start eliminating any concern we might have about the impacts of eating breakfast twice. Did any of the parents that you worked with express concern about that issue? No, actually, you know, we conducted a survey in uh, 14 of the schools par- of parents, and it w- we got a response rate of over 500. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't a- one parent who had mentioned anything about a concern of having a kid br- eat breakfast twice. That's, so, that's you know, I, well, as I wouldn't say that we didn't a- we didn't ask directly, like, you know, was your kid eating twice? Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that that would likely have come up if it was a concern of parents. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. So, um, we're as you know, we're I'm sure you are very interested and we are too in, in anything that helps eliminate stigma um, for free reduced students, especially in the kind of settings you're describing. So um, I'm wondering if, if, you know, this more effective marketing directly to kids at breakfast helps increase participation, not just among um, the kids who um, are eligible for free reduced, but the kids whose families are paying. Yeah, I mean, we didn't say that the nudges should only be for kids that, you know, the the staff think need it. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a general blanket, you know, you should nudge anyone who didn't eat breakfast in the morning to Mm -hmm. to breakfast. And most schools saw an uptick in their their paid participation, which was great. Yeah, I think that's really important. You know, I I just posted on the Inside School Food Facebook page uh, a story from um, Loudoun County, Virginia, um, which is like the districts that you worked with in that it's got um, only one third of the students um, eligible for free and reduced lunch. So they established a grab-and-go program, and, and what the uh, food service director there said is that the paying students perceive the whole thing as really cool. They wanted to be like their friends, and so they're getting a, uh, more participation across the board, and there's just, just simply no issue with stigma um, with this. So that, that's, a, that's a happy story. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I have to say that, you know, there's plenty of reasons that students from food-secure homes might still need a strong breakfast program at school, right? Absolutely. I mean, and actually, I served as, um, you know, we did these taste tests in some schools around uh, around here in Maryland, and I served as a greeter and just kind of a mover and shaker to talk about the program with some parents as they were coming out of parent-teacher conferences. And I was just shocked to he- hear from a lot of parents who, you know, would say, oh, you know, I knew that that program was there, but I didn't know that my kid, you know, could just go pay mm-hmm. for breakfast. And in a lot of ways, a lot of times, the breakfast is a dollar fifty or less. And, yeah. you know, in their mind, they see it as a huge 
huge value. And you know, maybe it wasn't something every day, but when mom and dad had to get out of the house early and they could just drop off their, their child at school and they could have breakfast at school, they saw it as a huge benefit. Absolutely. When you think about the insanity in the morning, especially if both parents are working and there's more than one kid, right? So mm-hmm. that's great. Well, Casey, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing more from the innovation team, so we should definitely stay in touch. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Laura. You have been listening to a conversation with Casey Mitchell, who is innovation manager at No Kid Hungry. Um, She's been talking about a new study on so-called nudge marketing uh, of school breakfast to students. There is a two-page toolkit on uh, No Kid Hungry's breakfast page, plus a lot more. So see today's show page on InsideSchoolFood.com for a link. And while you're there, please let us know who you are by signing up for our news letter or for one of our news feeds on Facebook or Twitter. Um, Next week, we take a deep dive into the political challenge facing community eligibility. Um, We're going to look at what does it amount to and who might be affected and why the heck is this happening? Um, I urge you to join us as this is a matter that all of us working in school nutrition need to understand fully and and really understand now. And and that's regardless of whether or not you work in an enrolled district. Um, I'm Laura Stanley. In the engineering booth today is Heritage Radio um, executive producer Jack Inslee and studio intern Malcolm Fisher. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.